0: hello everyone and welcome to shot reverse shot a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode my name's is Edwin davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology it's emily benita hi emily how's it going
1: i'm grand thanks ed how are you
0: uh, yeah, I'm okay. I um, uh, just had a, a a couple of days of illness. Uh, yeah. Has to be said. I like, had a bit of had a bit of a cold that's been going around the office. At my work uh, kind of settled in a little bit on Friday, but I was mostly fine. And then yesterday, you know, I had plans to go and watch Gemini Man the new Ang Lee movie, and it just completely fell through. I just spent the whole day feeling dreadful <laughs> at home. Feeling a little better now, but, yeah, still feeling feeling awful just at thinking, you know, I hadn't dodged it. You know, it's, a, it's one of those things where you could see, like the beginning of The Stand, you know, you could see everyone <laughs> else getting getting ill around you and you're, you hope to avoid Captain Trips, but eventually it catches up to you.
1: Tis the season... Kudos to you for referring to Gemini Man as the latest Ang Lee film, not the most current Will Smith vehicle.
0: Yeah, well, I'd, I'd like to think that it, uh, you know, like the fact that it has Will Smith is kind of immaterial in the sense that, you know, Ang Lee probably would have made that movie with just about anyone if he could, but he obviously wanted uh quote-unquote bankable star like Will Smith, although in the way the movie has done at the back box office, it may be more accurate to say you know once spankable stars like will smith in the lead which is a shame because i you know grew up loving will smith's movies and i would like him to do well but uh yeah it kind of he hasn't been on a great run of late
1: no and neither has ang and i grew up loving ang lee's films like ride with <clears> the <throat> devil the ice storm side ha- oh no Sidehouse rules was lassie Hellstrom. i'm getting confused over with my uh my obsessive toby Maguire phase but you know what i mean
0: mm-hmm. yeah and it feels like Angley would have done that if he had the chance oh yeah, if he could have fit that and ride the devil into the same year, yeah, oh. he's a much more deliberative filmmaker than that yes, which also makes it really weird when the things he decides to spend, certainly in recent times, the things that he decides to spend is his time on are you know the hundred and twenty frame per second <laughs> high frame rate movies, which i'm not, not I'm not to disparage that as a format and not to say that no one could ever do anything interesting with those movies but it's kind of seems with, the, with that format i'm sure that a lot of people have done something really interesting with it in terms of you know experimental films but it seems weird that he would use his considerable clout having won an oscar a second oscar rather for directing life of pi and having had this huge critical and commercial hit only seven years ago to make two consecutive movies in that format, which just haven't really, A, haven't really connected with audiences, and B, uh, just haven't been a terribly kind of great advertisement for the format, especially because most places can't actually show it in the format it's meant to be shown in.
1: I mean, quite the departure from earlier work, which uh, we'll segue onto later, I believe.
0: Yes, uh, but for now, we'll kind of... I guess that's kind of uh, news a little bit, but we've got some news stories that have cropped up over the last couple of weeks that I uh, we want to talk about. The first of which is the epic confrontation between Martin Scorsese and Marvel. Or, or to be more accurate, Martin Scorsese saying, eh, they're not for me. And the internet going insane <laughs> over <laughs> him, him saying, eh, they're not for me. But this died a few weeks ago where uh, he was doing an interview for the irishman and for empire magazine and in what was a fairly broad and wide-ranging conversation about a lot of different topics he spoke about how he does not consider the stuff that the marvel cinematic universe is doing to be quote-unquote cinema he likened them more to theme park rides and that led to first a lot of marvel fanboys being like you know, how could he possibly say this? He's an old man who doesn't know anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then a weird couple of days where like Joss Whedon and James Gunn were kind of like tweeting about how disappointed they were that Martin Scorsese doesn't like the, the movies that they make or something, yes. which felt very strange and uh, oddly uh, pathetic on their part. But yeah, it's it's just this kind of like weird little controversy that keeps cropping up pretty much just because people online keep insisting on talking about it and trying to make their argument that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is quote-unquote cinema because they like it and Martin Scorsese occasionally just being like you know what you know it's theme park rides which isn't even that necessarily that dismissive he's just essentially saying you know what they're they're kind of like these fun rides but they may not necessarily be that intellectually and emotionally nourishing which I don't think is the most kind of controversial stance to take though having said that and cars the table is because I, I pretty much agree with it wholeheartedly
1: yeah i don't know it just seems a bit like there are times where i'm on twitter and film twitter just seems to kind of tie itself in knots with things that aren't particularly like it's not a controversy it's not mm. a horrific it may it may not be the most helpful opinion and he's on he's on a press junket right so there's lots of things that are going to be taken not out of context because I don't think you need much context to understand that in isolation Mm. but it's not his main thrust of (laughs) understanding or opinion and Mm, you know he can just say it's just not for him and that's fine and and the idea of like oh why doesn't the person I really admire you know like my movie well sorry that's just kind of part and parcel of putting your film out and he's not your audience really is he like and and would it be a bit more awkward and embarrassing for him to sort of fake that he does like them like (laughs) I don't really know I just think the hypocrisy of it is that I've yet to see the Irishman but I don't think he's really someone who can pot about Marvel being um, making you know theme park films when uh, The Wolf of Wall Street is now an immersive theater experience that has um, the theater company behind it you know because someone's licensed that someone's given the go ahead to give the rights and stuff to to do mm. it and I've had to do a Twitter thread about like oh the people who are turning up have been quite aggressive and and drunk and it's like really. Are you surprised? Not that anyone should have to face that at work, but if you do an immersive Wolf of Wall Street and act surprised when people are belligerent <laughs> about a film about excess and greed, it's a little mm. bit like that shouldn't have happened, but still it could, it could happen. And, and what, what we use of be being open to. And also the fact that the Irishman is just absolutely stuff full of CGI. Mm. Um, what, you know, if we're talking about fabricating things and constructing things and, I don't know I just think it's again it's this sort of false divide of well it's creating there's something in the discourse that is creating divisions where there are none because a lot of people who like Scorsese films funny enough will like Marvel films it doesn't have to be two camps and Scorsese's perfectly within his rights to say that he doesn't he's not keen on on Marvel Mm -hmm. I'm sure his youngest daughter might be quite into it she's probably not able to watch the Irishman for a few years but you know odd
0: and he also like you can't say that he hasn't like made an effort because his whole stance is not like old man dislikes this new thing that people like it's like old man who is pretty much completely upset on everything that's going on in cinema because he's kind of a, a voracious watcher of movies he always has he always likes to keep up with it he has he says in the first interview that he has tried yeah like, he has watched a bunch of them presumably as what because um people he's worked with have been in them or because uh you know, like you say he's got a young daughter who yeah probably has wanted to see a bunch of them and he certainly probably gets screens of them around award season or whatever so like he is someone who has put the work in and just been like yeah you know what doesn't really chime with me it's not what i kind of look for when i go to the movies and like that to me feels like a perfectly defensible argument (laughs) exactly
1: he's not dismissing them out of hand having never seen them and he's someone who is a cinephile and just saying they're not for me because that's how i feel about an awful lot of marvel stuff but i really liked thor ragnarok so shoot me
0: Mm, yeah so it's just a weird story that just doesn't seem to die and i think at least part of the reason why is like every so often like on my Twitter feed like people will share, basically will purposely share bad takes they don't agree with to be like, my god, this is still going on. And one of the ones that was doing the other the rounds the other day was someone just sharing, like, images from. There was one which was just kind of like the Marvels movies have earned like a billion, twelve billion dollars worldwide, and Scorsese's have only earned like nine hundred million or something like that. Clearly, people have voted with their wallets. I'm kind of like, I'm still really successful. That's still a lot of money that yeah. his movies have have made. They're just not, you know, geared to a big mainstream audience or whatever. Um, And then the other one was just someone putting, like, clips... Or not clips, but, you know, shots from Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever and, like, one of the more recent Avengers movies to, like, talk about, like, the emotional impact those movies had on them. And I'm kind of thinking, yeah, that's great. It still doesn't really refute the point that he's making. Yeah. Which is that... Don't work for him, yeah, but yeah, so I'm pretty sure people will be arguing about this until uh, long after The Irishman has been released and after it has completed its run on Broadway, which was another thing that's happened in this last week where uh, where it was announced that Netflix have booked out a theater on Broadway to screen the movie because a lot of major uh, cinema chains in the US won't show it because obviously it's a Netflix movie, it's only going to have like a window of like two weeks of uh theatricality which i think is quite interesting and it's it's kind of a nice headline but also portends a terrible experience because uh broadway theater is not really designed for showing movies
1: so no, funny that
0: so our next story uh is the uh the joker which uh, movie which was released last week and just done very very well it's earned nearly 200 million in the us i think over the last two weeks and has you know kind of done very well got f- fairly fine reviews sparked a lot of tedious debate online ever since it like debuted at Venice and after it won the golden lion but the thing about it that was in some ways most interesting about it was like in the run up to its release all this talk about it being a dangerous movie how it was going to lead to violence and you know incels were going to like go to all the screenings and just start shooting up the place which by and large has not happened i think there have been reports of people um, getting into fist fights and like being thrown out for vaping but that kind of just seems like something that could happen at any movie it doesn't necessarily yeah. seem to be strictly speaking joker related but i i found that and the controversy surrounding you know todd phillips talking about how uh you can't be funny anymore and kind of making kind of like old man shouts at clouds arguments those for me as someone who still hasn't seen the Joker because it just doesn't necessarily look that good to me that's the kind of stuff I found most interesting about the movie is that this particular movie has really sparked a massive several massive debates uh over the last couple of months in a way that I don't think a lot of films in recent memory have
1: and I think it's again one of these things where I've not seen the film yet but it's one of those films where the story around the film is threatening to overshadow whatever the film itself is trying to say mm, because yeah. the first we really heard of it because I remember just thinking like oh okay a dark reboot of the Joker with Joaquin Phoenix so in my head the film is Hoka mm-hmm. it is it was sort of announced and we were like oh, okay not that long after Jared Leto but I guess we all need a palate cleanser and after that and then the big stuff i heard about it was everything coming out of venice and that it won the golden lion and that it got an eight minute standing ovation and was being described as incel friendly which is again some of the most incendiary things you can say about something that isn't on general release yet Mm -hmm. and then the big midden of reviews that range from absolutely fantastic to well it's trying to be a scorsese film essentially it's trying to be the king of comedy it's trying to be taxi driver isn't actually as deep as it thinks it is but looks incredible and Joaquin is great as the hoker but the character's not quite there but and then Todd Phillips kind of (laughs) then (laughs) saying that I mean this is the point where like my respect for Mark Maron grows with each day and and him Hmm. saying you know I think very succinctly and uh, passionately about like you need to grow if, if maybe we'll quit comedy then if you don't If you're not able to say anything without being incredibly hurtful rather than rather than biting, rather than satirical, rather than observational. And, and, you know, we talk about punching up and punching down, but I think a lot of it with comedy is we talk very much about who are you attacking? Whereas I think really maybe we'd move forward in that seemingly um, endlessly spiraling debate as to who are you protecting? And I think that's it like with Todd Phillips it's like who who are you actually goading what what status quo do you think you're upending by the hangover films and there's another story being shared about how the baby in the first hangover film um got uh got their part uh which seemed <clears> to be under duress of the father and without the permission of the mother and very icky and it's just. But again, like I'm still reasonably interested in seeing Hoker, but like I the the discourse around it is just off the scale and I think that's it. It's and I and I feel like I'm less concerned with films that are like theme parks and more with films that are like clickbait. Mm-hmm. and I think that's just my feeling here I'm like I'm in no rush to see it I'm kind of intrigued but the problem is is that I do feel that it is appealing to exactly that curiosity that is not actually open and willing to learn it's more like well what's actually going to happen it feels like rubbernecking
0: mm. yeah it kind of feels like there's like an element of the movie and I think this is this Cuts to the core. I think a lot of Todd Phillips' work and his whole, certainly his whole approach to the press tour, I was ha- of him just being like, of the movie itself being like, "I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you," and just being kind of like, mm. really just trying to get a rise out of people without necessarily making any kind of like uh, sincere investigation of the stuff it's bringing up. Especially when you know the movie, from what I've I've heard from people talk about it and from the reviews, you know, is all see, it talks about mental illness and the failings of the welfare state and things like that you know kind of touching on like very big and important things but doing them in service of a joker movie kind of feels like they're just kind of like throwing out a lot of things without necessarily having any real interest in in interrogating them and um yeah i think that that what Marin said about it on wtf i think on the episode with danny devito that
1: it is yeah
0: This week uh, was really wonderful. I saw people sharing that online. I thought that was very, very succinct uh, in essentially arguing like, you know, you can say whatever you want and everyone else has the right to say to you, yeah, that's not funny or like that's like offensive and doesn't really have any value to it. And, you know, you can continue to work in that vein if you want and you can take your lumps and just kind of keep making stuff and there'll be an audience for it as we've seen over the last couple of years with some of the people who have decided to make a hard tack to the right to maintain their careers in comedy but that doesn't necessarily mean that what you're doing is uh in any way noble or worthwhile
1: yeah totally
0: our next story is is hot off the presses because this debuted just this very day uh, <laughs> is the trailer for uh, Stephen Gaggan's Doolittle, the <laughs> new adaptation of Doctor Doolittle starring Robert Downey Jr., the follow-up to Syriana. <laughs> I think technically I'm not sure Steve Gaghan has directed anything in the intervening years. I'll just need to double-check that. But um, certainly is a, a weird direction for him to have gone. But uh, the trailer for it debuted today. It's weird um to see <laughs> it's just it's just very very weird a to see robert downey jr in a non-tony stark role having that been all he's done for most of the last couple of decades apart from a few outliers liars such as the uh aforementioned todd phillips's uh due date so that in itself is weird his accent is very strange in it i likened it to uh reese fans but a very bad reese fans you know is kind of welsh but not really
1: yeah what is um, that accent about i just
0: <laughs> it's some very bold choices uh and yeah it's just it's 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 just a, it's a very strange to see someone try and make a very big sincere adaptation of dr doolittle of those stories in the style in which they were originally written because obviously those books are i think from the turn of the century and they, they you know if you look at the adaptation from the 60s it has made in that very kind of that period style like, there it's weird because there is so little affection for that take on the character at this point in terms of like the books aren't that popular they may not even be in print anymore for all i know that movie is a well well-known disaster at this point only famous for the image of the for the clip of him kissing a seal and throwing (laughs) it off of a cliff (laughs) made famous (laughs) recently by uh catherine stebbins who's who uh, (laughs) shared it all over twitter Twitter (laughs) to much uh much much delight on my part part. and it's kind of very heavily overshadowed i think at this point by the eddie murphy movies which i think for a whole generation are what we think of when we think of dr doolittle and uh, yeah it's very weird to see so much money being thrown at a retelling of the story that decides to go for arguably the least popular take on the character
1: i'm so sorry i'm still just in bits thinking of him yeeting that seal off the cliff oh my god he sings her a song and she's all (laughs) dressed up in her little bonnet. And that's kind of the reveal, the seal reveal. Oh, my word. Yes, Ed. Oh, sorry, I've calmed down now. Yes, I was. I am of the generation of the Eddie Murphy adaptation, which, given the very original uh, Victorian source material, which I believe, uh, even though I haven't read myself, I've heard on the grapevine is quite racist. So you'd yep, hope that, it like... Is having Eddie Murphy you know not not that I believe that race was ever like tackled head-on um, in that adaptation from what I can remember we thought we could just leave it leave it alone apparently not mm. who was asking for the who thought yes this is the this is the source material we need to return to yet again and as this is hot off the press I had a quick scan through uh Twitter prior to recording after watching the trailer and mainly just I couldn't really take anything in because of the mystery of Downey's accent. I was trying mm. to place it. I was like, it's somewhere in the game. Sounds a bit Scottish there. Oh, no, as you say, yeah, maybe Welsh. And there is a someone who worked on the film who's gone on the moniker Goofy Face, who is sharing stories of production hell. Um, because I know it went through a couple of title changes and was like rattled mm-hmm. about a little bit, but I just want to share word for word, if you wouldn't mind, um, I think the highlight, um, which is um ironic and horrifying uh, given what we've just said from Goofy Face. Mate, you wouldn't believe half the shit that went on during this film's pre-production. Here's a tidbit that I doubt anyone will truly believe. Stephen Gagan's dog is one of the most incredibly regal-looking motherfucker sick I've ever seen, which is a shame. Because it's a stone-cold racist. And without a doubt, we'll track down every human in the building with even the slightest drop of ethnic ancestry and bark. And I mean fucking bark. Like how a scrapyard Doberman guard dog might bark at a squirrel. With fucking death and violence in its very core. Every (laughs) single non-pure white studio worker. It was like the end of days whenever that fucking beautiful dog came to visit with Stefan. Uh, which I think wow. is all I need to take away from it. Although, of course, uh, the goose did feature quite heavily in the trailer, mm-hmm. and part of me mm-hmm. likes to think that it was given a little bit more presence because of uh, Untitled Goose Game. I don't know. Honk, honk is what I say to this, Ed. Honk, honk.
0: Yes, yeah, a golden age for gooses. For
1: geese. <laughs> That's the proper word. Gold, golden geese, eggs, something in that, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's 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 i'm I'm kind of fascinated in this movie purely because i i it's gonna be such a strong test of whether or not Robert Downey jr. is actually a movie star in the mm. in the traditional sense of you know someone who can you can slot into any movie and it will do fairly well because he has become so identified, I think, in the uh, my, uh, the mind of so many audience members with the Tony Stark character. That character's journey has now ended in the Marvel series. And so he's obviously free to do whatever he wants. It seems to me that this is a really weird... I think this is kind of a passion project for him. I think this is something that he's been trying to get made for a really long time for, for whatever reason. <laughs> and it really does feel like watching this... I couldn't help but think oh this is gonna lose so much money (laughs) because it's such a i think it's like 175 million dollars or something like that it's in the, the general sort of range for when disney occasionally take a punt on a big live action movie that's not based on one of their previous animated movies or not you know not a marvel one like this is like stuff like john carter uh tron legacy they all kind of fall in that same sort of range and i just can't I, I look at that train and i think they're really banking on people wanting to see more of robert downey jr and not more of tony stark yeah and i'm really curious to see how that gamble pays off because this looks like such a massive disaster yeah uh and it's opening in january which isn't a great sign of confidence because even though you can open a movie in january and then they can do well it is still a little bit of a dumping ground and it's it's pretty easy to see this as be doing similar to what dumbo did this year where you know kind of gets a big showcase um at you know kind of major events the trailers everywhere and then it comes out and everyone's kind of like man i don't want to see a fucking live action dumbo (laughs) Uh, and like that kind of feels like what the response of most people will be to this one
1: And Lindsay Ellis, uh, in her Woke Disney essay recently, I think really brilliantly sort of pincered Dumbo in terms of the potential that they had with opening that up to a live-action remake that they completely missed.
0: (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Our final news story this week uh, is a very sad one. The news broke yesterday that uh, Robert Forster has passed away. Robert Forster is, uh, I think, arguably best known for his role in Jackie Brown for which he was nominated for an Oscar that was kind of one of the examples you know of Quentin Tarantino rescuing is perhaps you know kind of too strong a word but resuscitating someone's career maybe someone who had fallen into obscurity and bringing them back into relevance in a major way uh, with that movie giving him a, a role that was really kind of wonderful in a arguably his best film um but he is someone who had been around for for years and years and years he uh is, was also in reflections in a golden eye the john houston movie where he is the subject of marlon brando's barely suppressed homosexual longing not a great film but he's very good in it in, in recent years you know he was in the final series of breaking bad in a role that he also reprised in el camino the movie that just hit netflix this weekend which is uh kind of a strange and unfortunate coincidence. And the role that I got to most think of him in certainly of recent years was his role in Twin Peaks the Return, where he played Harry Truman's brother. And that role for me really encapsulated something about Robert Forster that was so wonderful, which is that he was such a soulful and tender actor, even though he also looked like he would murder you. Very easily, (laughs) yeah. Kind of like this, this real tough guy exterior. But you know, in that show, he was brought in because you know Michael Michael and David Lynch couldn't reach an agreement on bringing the character of Harry back, so they needed a new sheriff, and he shows up and he feels like a natural part of the town. uh He feels like someone who had always been there, but you know, maybe he was just like he had always been. Walking out of a room as Agent Cooper was walking in in the original series, you know, like he really did feel like he had all these relationships with all these people, and he brought a real tenderness to scenes like the one in which he and Warren Frost talk to each other over Skype. Uh, you know, a scene in which two characters who have never been, have never interacted with each other at any point previously in the run of the show, are not even in the same room because uh, Warren Frost was in very poor health at that time. And that was kind of like the only way they could include him in the show. But it kind of radiates warmth. And that was, I think, the quality that he as an actor brought to to so many of his roles, particularly in the later years of his life.
1: He really did. But I would have to say my favourite role of his is on the Eric Andre show, when he is sprung upon by Eric and Hannibal Buress and uh has a very pleasingly no bullshit response to <laughs> <laughs> Eric's antics and uh, is not really having it, but still clearly signed a release form to still be part of it. So yes, RIP.
0: So we'll go on to our main subject this week, which is when artists change. And this uh, came to me as an idea when I was listening to Ghostine, the new album by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, which came out last week, I think. And... I was listening to it I thought it was it was very interesting to consider the evolution that Nick Cave has gone on over the last over the last decade or so you know people who aren't familiar with Nick Cave he's an Australian musician who has been making music now for about 40 years or so under various guises first with his kind of like aggressive gothic punk band The Birthday Party and then more most consistently through his work as the lead singer and songwriter of The Bad Seeds, this kind of shifting collection of musicians that he's worked with since the early 80s. And his music during much of that time has been, like I said, fairly gothic, very informed by kind of Americana, murder ballads, you know, a whole album of nick cave songs is called murder ballads uh you know it, it has this real interest in the seedy side of america in crime in murderers and all this sort of stuff but there's always been kind of a very literary quality to them there's a certain remove to it sort of a brechtian quality to it where he always felt somewhat separate from the music that he was making for the most, not not entirely you know some of the stuff they did like uh, on the boatman's call which is uh, an album pretty much all about the end of his relationship with PJ Harvey. Yeah, there's a little more emotion in there, but for, for the most part he's someone who kind of likes to write songs that have kind of like stories and characters in there and the emotion is kind of buried underneath all this stuff. And then a few years ago he suffered a terrible tragedy in his life where uh one of his sons passed away uh, unexpectedly and that has had a very sharp and stark impact on his music um most notably on his album the skeleton tree which was being made at the time that his son died which is a very sparse album which is like musically doesn't really have any of the rock influence that uh, a lot of his previous work had or the country influence and on *Ghosteen*, that's taken even further you know it's mainly kind of like not uh, kind of atmospheric and not tune based and instead the emphasis is on his voice which uh has always had this very strong sonorous quality to it as kind of deep baritone and a great strength to it but on this album it feels very vulnerable in places you know there's a tremor to his voice that wasn't there before the lyrics are a little more straightforward and uh, i thought it was very striking to me how much his music has changed so notably Uh, in recent years, and and I was thinking about how other artists that uh, I like and admire have changed in that time and and instances where artists have gone on this, like, huge transformation and instances where I've been, like, perfectly happy to go along for the ride. I think in the case of Nick Cave, uh, musically, I really love what he's doing now, but I also really admire what he's done in terms of his website, The Red Hand Files, where he responds to fans who write letters and, you know, has kind of taken on this incredibly humane uh approach to his fans who are asking questions and writing these really beautiful responses to them. And and instances of artists who, you know, they change and you just kinda of think, you know what? I'm not really keen on going along on this ride. So uh yeah, so those are the kind of like the broad themes I thought we would discuss on this week's episode.
1: Yes, so Les said about Todd Phillips quitting comedy <laughs> mm. <laughs> and his Change the better. Thinking of this theme, Ed, the, I am not sure I'm ever going to be emotionally robust enough to listen to Nick Cave's new album, although I really want mm. to. Um, I did manage to listen to uh, Angel Olsen's most recent album and that that left me devastated for a good while. Um, mm. So well worth listening to. So I really must, I, I will, I will Get myself, <laughs> get myself listening to it at some point. But what immediately struck me when discussing this theme was having just recently seen the farewell. Uh, mm. Was uh, Awkwaf- Awkwafina, yeah, uh, for example, who began in in sort of music and rapping, and is now acting spectacularly. May I add? I think she's pretty much my favourite thing about the farewell. Um, Lady Gaga as well, um, mm. even though I know she, I'm not sure what her plans are for the rest of her cinematic career, but obviously she came in with quite a splash and in terms of her nominations and recognition for A Star Is Born, I think it's pretty interesting. Um, and that's different because it's not kind of like, it's not like the two of them began as triple threats. They they did right, very yeah. specifically start out as musicians and performers and I've kind of moved in. Um, Taylor Swift and Jennifer Hudson and and Cats remains to be <laughs> mm-hmm. remains to be seen but there's quite a natural progression I think and it's funny that I do think that often um there is a mixed reception to I think there is generally quite a lot of hostility surprisingly enough um for any gender of a musician coming into acting like I remember that was levied against Justin Timberlake quite a bit when he started acting um and you know he's not terrible (laughs) like i think i think he's actually got comic chops um in particular with his kind of lonely island appearances and he's clearly wanting to do a good job which i think is always um i always respect but i think Mm. particularly Aquafina and gaga there is a little bit of maybe a slight bit of like there's a bit of patronizing edge to the response because it's like, oh, you can act as well.
0: And I'm like, mm. it's not
1: it's not a massive leap, really, is it? If you're already a creative person and you are performing live. <laughs> like, um, I don't know, Kate Nash as well, who does an mm. absolutely amazing turn in Glow, I think. Yeah. So that was my immediate kind of thinking on the theme is that I think it's interesting that there are a lot of people who, particularly musicians who are women, who move into acting and I wonder if how much of it was them wanting to kind of act in the first place and actually music funnily enough they managed to get more of a <laughs> more of a pull and then people you know to become a you know a brand or someone with enough interest and pull to then make films um, and I think that's interesting in Orquafina's case in particular because it's not like she is on the level of someone like Gaga like globally Hmm. renowned but she has enough of a pull that the farewell probably was able to kind of get pushed over the line because of her involvement possibly being attached i don't know maybe that's a bit too speculative i do think it's interesting that there is a kind of and i think it's to do with the state of like the lines between entertainment being further blurred i Hmm. don't think there's a stricter discipline now between and and it and it feels almost like we are going back to a slight variety. It's like if you you know all singing, all dancing, basically all acting as well. It's not a major leap.
0: Yeah, I think in the case of Orquefina, one of the things that's quite interesting about her career is like so much of her music and uh, rapping and comedy and stuff is kind of exists pretty much just for people who are relatively au with like the online world people who go on yes. youtube a lot people who uh, are able to follow that sort of stuff whereas i think for people of an older generation or people who just aren't you know that keyed into youtube celebrities and things like that like she is you know they they probably only know her and then this is when i say they i also mean me uh like <laughs> only really know her from her work in movies and things like oceans 8 and crazy Witch asians which she was one of kind of like the breakout stars of last year in some respects i think that can be very helpful for helping someone to kind of break out of that thing because break out of the the ghetto of being kind of like labeled only famous for doing stuff on youtube like not having to be uh, the next fred you know kind of like never able to escape the fact that they were famous on youtube uh and able then to kind of like build a broader career as a result of that which i think that she has already done obviously she's only been in a handful of movies at this point but there is such a huge range between what she does in crazy rich asians and what she does in the farewell where she is much more what's well, still while still being you know kind of very funny in the movie being a much more grounded character, and obviously yes. not as heightened as she is in in the earlier movie, and I think that that's uh, a real good sign for her development as an artist going forward. That she is able to kind of take on those sort of roles and be so convincing in them um, in both in in these wildly different movies that have such disparate tones from each other.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Another example of someone that I was thinking of in terms of like artists who I really feel have changed notably over the course of their career and who I have been perfectly happy to go along for the ride for uh, is Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh yeah. Who, if you look at his first three films really feels like a hugely talented young filmmaker, someone who is, you know, wearing his influences very much on their sleeve. You know, like I remember when I first started learning about him, like everyone was always saying like Altman and Swasey and Jonathan Demi. Although the person who was saying Jonathan Demi the most was Paul Thomas Anderson himself, who has never been shy about talking about his influences and giving credit where credit is due. Which is one of the many things that I like about him as a filmmaker is that he is he is perfectly happy to say, oh, yeah, these people were hugely important in my development as a, as an artist, which is always nice to see. But mm. those early films do all feel, whilst they're all... That they're, I like the, those first three movies, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights and Magnolia, and I think that they all showcase his tremendous skill as a visual storyteller. They all also feel very indebted to the filmmakers that are most strongly most strongly influence him but starting with punch drunk love and going through there will be Blood and the master and inherent vice and most recently phantom thread you really do see him coming into his own as someone who creates movies that don't really feel like you know like most other people even though they are obviously still influenced by other filmmakers and you can point to specific influences of you know like the long goodbye on inherent vice or whatever they all feel distinctive and unique and not necessarily like those early movies kind of like tied to that like 90s video store generation like you don't really think of him being in the same league as like a robert rodriguez or a kevin smith anymore like the people that he nominally came up with and part of his evolution from there is like he's gone from this person who was pretty much just known as a guy who made movies with huge casts uh, and was like someone who made these kind of big sprawling stories to someone who has kind of chipped away and narrowed his focus as a storyteller kind of to a fairly austere degree at this point you know like making something like the master which you know has a bunch of locations and a lot of different uh, supporting players but really is about exploring the dynamic between joaquin phoenix philip seymour hoffman and amy adams's character or you know phantom fred which is this incredibly intimate and uh i mean like kinky is really the only word for <laughs> it. Like, <it's laughs> yeah. Very, yeah i was just kind of like what's what's a better word and there isn't really like this this relationship that uh, kind of goes in directions that you may not necessarily expect and the movie kind of like explores them in ways that are really really kind of like fascinating and that's not something that i necessarily could have foreseen him doing when you know i was you know watching but watching my imported copy of boogie nights and being like oh man this guy's like got such bravura directing and the camera's constantly moving for him to now be someone whose work is in many ways, defined by its its stillness or its more measured qualities. And I personally have been very happy to go on that journey with him because I really feel as if each one of his new movies is going to promise something I haven't seen before, but I do know that a lot of people have been kind of alienated by that and are not as enamoured of his more recent work as
1: I am. Well, you brought up Phantom Thread, Ed, and I think... We're all well aware of how I feel about that film by now, so I won't launch into it again. But I'm with you. I think PTA has really evolved in a way that I can't think in the same way as many of his contemporaries, like you said. Mm. And he does have such a unique vision and voice. And I know I sound a bit pretentious talking about him in that way, but I really do believe in that. And there's something gorgeous about like watching his dga interview with jonathan demi and how he's so clearly like reverent of him but stories about him being on set and kind of having fun with things and find like his his tone i think that sort of really started to come together in the master and i think was really resounding in phantom thread is this incredibly dark humor Mm, which i think is engrossing and very fertile and even though it's a mix of various different things, it's like, he's coming out to be original now because I think he's developed the confidence to actually, to play rather than kind of again. And I think his earlier films that are clearly so influenced by people that he admires it's from that reverence. And now I think he's like, Oh, maybe I have something to say myself rather than just hold up what I think is how I think you do films. He's, finally doing films that he wants and i cannot wait for what he does next honestly
0: yeah he has i think there's a um a quality to i think filmmakers who have hit middle age where particularly if they have had both in actual age and in terms of their you know their career because i think this is you know this is certainly the middle the middle period of him as an artist Mm. where the brashness of youth has kind of either been worn away by failure in the sense of like you kind of like show up and you're like right i'm gonna take over the world and it doesn't happen or has kind of been worn away by success where you're kind of like okay i i was able to make these movies and you know people like them i got oscar nominations they did well at award uh, um at the box office or whatever and then thinking okay so now what do i do you know i've been successful well so i want to do with the the potential and the clout that have been given to me. And he strikes me as someone who met success and, you know, kind of the occasional failure because obviously Hard Eight was, that was not a very good experience for him. It was released under a different name and I think a different cut. And he generally, you know, didn't seem to be particularly pleased with how that movie turned out. But someone who, you know, kind of went through this period of being considered this, this bright young thing, this kind of hope for American filmmaking, more or less kind of like met those expectations, but you know, wasn't just satisfied to kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again. He really does feel like someone who has taken that success and gone, okay, I'm gonna do whatever comes to mind. That may take, you know, kind of like five years for me to kind of hone a script together, but, uh, or, you know, it could come together in relatively like short period of time as you know if you're looking from inherent vice to fandom thread where there's only three years between those two movies but you know once he gets the idea he clearly enjoys like honing it and really keying in on whatever the thing is that really fascinates him and seeing him become this more focused filmmaker from someone who was defined early on by kind of like this real overreaching ambition which i think you really see in magnolia where even he now as he said in his interview with wtf where he was like man i would cut half an hour of that thing no in an instant if i could there is like a real sense that he has developed and changed as a person and has reached this point where he is perfectly happy to kind of let the work speak for itself and not feel like he needs to constantly be showing off
1: yes yeah I think the other person that struck me on this theme is Jordan Peele.
0: Mm. Oh, yeah. Big change.
1: Big change, but also underlying, I think, a sense of uh, tension and timing that was honed mm. in comedy and is being let loose in horror social commentary, which I very much enjoy.
0: Hmm. Yeah, me too. And someone who... Understands the uh, the importance of a well placed joke in movies that are otherwise can be, can you know, kind of very dark and upsetting. I know that Us is a kind of a very creepy movie in a lot of ways, but you know, all of the stuff with Tim Heidecker and Elizabeth Moss is really, really funny. Even when Tim Heidecker is uh being very menacing, as he is kind of towards the middle of that movie, it's still very funny watching him perform because he's giving this kind of really big performance that fits the role and fits the movie but uh, is kind of like or or if you look at at pretty much everything winston duke is doing in that movie which is really really funny is kind of like a slightly dopey dad who is placed into this truly nightmarish situation yeah and um i mentioned him earlier but i think an interesting example of or two interesting examples, actually, of people who tried to change and it not sticking, I think, would be Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith, who both, at various points in their careers, tried to branch out from what they'd done previously. Um, I think, you know, if you look at Jackie Brown as a interesting kind of not-quite-diverging uh, path for Quentin Tarantino, where he, after his kind of first two movies, had made this kind of big splash... And he decided to adapt the work of a writer who meant a great deal to him and creating a movie that is kind of beautiful and lovely, but is way more restrained than a lot of his work had been up to that point. Reacting to that by kind of doing a lot of the same sort of stuff that he'd done previously in his subsequent movies and going far more into the film geek side of thing, which is still like fairly enjoyable to watch. I like a lot of the movies he's made since Jackie Brown, but there is definitely a sense that even with the stuff that is really great that he's done in the years since that he had the the choice to kind of maybe f- uh plow a more difficult path for himself of trying to do different stuff that he decided not to take and instead just kind of went back to the thing that felt perhaps more natural to him and Kevin Smith had the same thing with Jersey Girl, where he kind of tried to move away from the stuff that he had been doing in the Viewersk universe, which he had seemingly put a button on with Jay and Silent Bob strike back in the most literal way in that that movie ends with, like, Alanis Morissette just kind of pretty much wrapping up the entire universe as its uh, god figure, and then being like, okay, I'm going to try and do something else, and instead... Jersey Girl just being a complete an utter fiasco and him kind of pretty much immediately going back to the stuff that felt natural for him with Clerks 2. And even though he hasn't really I mean obviously they're doing a Jane Silent Bob reboot of some sort now, but you know, he hasn't really gone back to that world since, but he has not really left the kind of like shaggy, goofy, stoner comedy realm Particularly, you know, when you add in all of his subsequent work in podcasting um, since Jersey Girl. And I think that that's kind of an example of an artist very consciously trying to change and be like, okay, I'm going to try and make a more mature movie that maybe reflects where I am now in my life. And people being like, nah, sorry, mate, we don't really like that. And then being like, okay, I'll go back to the, the kind of goofy bullshit. Which I do like. Jersey Girl is not a movie that I would stand for in any way, but like I always do, kind of look at it and think, oh, it's a shame that he didn't try and make like another couple of movies in that vein, or you know, that he didn't try to keep trying like a few more times to do something that was a little atypical, just to see what what he could have done with that. Because the only other time he really did anything like that would be something like Red State, where he tried to make a horror movie, which is interesting in some places like he's got a really great performance by michael parks but again just just kind of feels like he's not really going all in on trying something new
1: yeah and i really love him as an actor in the sort of not not massive hit or particularly well-known uh, catch and release starring jennifer garner and timothy mm. oliphant um yeah he does a really fantastic dramatic turn not yeah. unlike Jack Black, mm. it's it sort of him and and Margaret the wedding. I think is um, really great, and yeah, it is a shame that he didn't sort of crack on with that because even though Jersey Girl had a lot to be admired about it, there was a developing maturity as particularly just as a visual filmmaker from something yeah. like Chasing Amy, for example. So, but who knows? You know, he's he's doing well. He may he may yet. Yeah, return to that. I think speaking of kind of comedic and dramatic turns, I think for me and this is something that I find endlessly fascinating is when SNL cast members move into film Mm. but not only comic roles but move into dramatic roles and I think Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader are probably the two guiding lights of that just now. And I think they've actually both managed to do that with very little resistance. Slightly mm. slightly different models, because I think they both well Kristen Wigg like hammered indie films for a while. And of course they were both in the Skeleton Twins, which I think they are both absolutely fantastic in. Mm-hmm. Um and um but Kristen Wigg was just in a whole bunch of different indie films, like from the slightly slightly less successful Welcome to Me to something like um the diary of a teenage girl which is spectacular and um mariel heller should be so much bigger than she (laughs) she currently is i think she's getting there but well she's she's already there it's everyone else that needs to catch up but someone like steve Mm. carell as well for example who i think has managed to become like a real all-rounder like from from being really sinister in something like fox catcher but starting off in kind of 40 year old virgin but also little miss sunshine as well it's like oh wow and it's like, is is it is it a big change or is it actually just an actor who's able to act in many different things? Olivia Colman, I think, is the big one for me. Mm, and it's amazing yeah. seeing America wake up to her when we've, in the UK in particular, have seen her do this journey over the past sort of like decade and a bit from being known as basically Sophie from Peep Show to being like, and she's an incredibly viable Oscar winner. <laughs> like. <laughs>
0: Yeah, which I still—that's still—it's one of those things that I keep thinking, it's like, "Oh yeah, Nick, uh, uh, Olivia Coleman won an Oscar.
1: Yeah, <laughs> what a
0: weird thing that was, and what a what a delightful thing that was. That I think uh, it took everyone by surprise, not least her. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, like, I think that she's a a wonderful example of someone who, obviously, kind of jumped back and forth between comedy and and drama, particularly in the wake of Broadchurch, which I think was one of the ones yes. that really kind of brought her a great deal of, of acclaim for her dramatic work whereas before it was more kind of like you know like she was obviously in Tyrannosaur which she mm-hmm. was was great in and it's a kind of a very dark and, and difficult and serious role for her but Broadchurch was like the first thing that I think brought her mainstream attention for her dramatic work as opposed to like something like Tyrannosaur which was much more uh, you know didn't make a huge amount of an impact when it came out despite being a very very good film and i think uh it, it it's still quite nice that she does jump back and forth between the two and that she has achieved like a level of success that even as she was kind of like growing her or her audience you know and people became more aware of Olivia Coleman was and i really feel as if like over the last five or six years of show like she was always someone who just constantly has been talked about as one of the great actors of our time that she would now be you know an oscar winner and headlining the crown for its new series which really feels like a huge step for her career to be the the lead of what will probably be a hugely popular global television success Uh, it's quite nice to see
1: absolutely and she's just racking up all the queens as she goes
0: So we end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot First Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week?
1: Can I have two, Ed? Am I allowed? Yeah, since
0: Matt's not here, why not?
1: All right, thank you. So I've got two. I have, uh, it's been uploaded to YouTube recently, Um, Harry Brewis, aka H Guy, his talk from XOXO Festival about his Donkey Kong live stream in Aid of Mermaids is a really beautiful, very funny, and affirming, rallying presentation and meditation on what he did and how people helped. And the, speaking of sort of how artists change, his kind of pivot within doing it from starting out in a kind of like spiting a certain former comedy writer to doing Mm -hmm. things to make the world better. I can't recommend it enough. Even if you're not like entirely into games, it's just a really great documentation of activism
0: Mm.
1: and, um, slightly cheeky direct action, should we call it? Um, but that how could that, that community is still really important and bringing that together is really great. And then, um, my second recommendation is a video essay by scout to foyer, um, which he put out a few weeks ago now, which, uh, content notice um, is about suicide and is about a couple of friends that he lost and him grieving essentially in real time but trying to express it and what Russian Doll in particular how how watching that helped him and even though I wasn't mad about Russian Doll um, it gave me a different level of appreciation for it as a series um for just such a personal and vulnerable response um so i cannot recommend that enough
0: cool um i will recommend funny enough that you mention it i'll recommend russian doll which i watched uh <laughs> over the course of uh, a weekend last week having not watched any of it um, and knowing it primarily from the Thursday water concept gif uh, <laughs> shot, uh, still that is often shared on, uh, Every on social media. Yeah. Um but um, I I had gone in more or less blind to it. I obviously knew about the Groundhog Day style repeating uh, time loops quality to it. But other than that, I didn't really know that much going into it. And I was uh, really pleasantly surprised by not just how kind of funny it is, which I, I think it is very, very funny, and how good Natasha Leone was, but also how well I think the show keeps changing up its premise. Um, you know, like, you go through three episodes, I think, and you think, okay, this is pretty fun seeing her die all the time and kind of seeing the things that change as she goes along, and she's kind of gathering information. Certainly as someone who plays a lot of video games, as I do... That is something that I kind of find really fun, like that sense of discovery of, like, picking away at different parts of the world as you discover more of it, and that's why I like that aspect of it. Um, But you're kind of thinking, how how is this going to sustain another five episodes? And then at the end of that episode, oh, there's a complication to it. Okay, let's see how they go to that. And then you kind of watch another th- three episodes, you think, oh, you know, this is... uh you know like they've explored this complication pretty fully what they're going to do for the end of it and then suddenly it's like oh there's a new one so i I, th- I felt that it was much better paced in some ways than a lot of those netflix shows are oh, and they- that you know it, it took what could be a fairly um easily run down premise and uh made it you know kind of like more interesting uh as it as it went along and yeah like natasha leone's j- just a great lead in it i really enjoyed the, the general kind of, like, tone of it as well, and it, it kind of felt like a very... It was a very energising watch for me. Watching each episode kind of felt like a fun little surprise. I'm not sure how exactly they're going to do with a second series of it, uh, considering how the first one kind of seems to wrap things up fairly well. Yeah. But I am interested to see uh, where they go with it when the show comes back, uh, you know, whenever that happens next year or so. Mm, mm. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, PlayerFM, Spotify, all the usual places. Raters, reviewers, and recommend it to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And goodbye from me.